Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. You guys know who Wim Hof is? Anybody know who Wim Hof is? He's the guy that like goes to Iceland and like goes, breaks the ice and goes swimming in his underwear. And like, you, you know, it's like a thing. You know, I guess it's good for you. So this is good for you. This is like... I don't know if this gets like ketones going or something like that, um, eliminates brain fog, but we're just going to think warm thoughts. We're going to preach fire up in, in this place and uh, see if we can warm it up. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Acts chapter 9 for our Bible study tonight. If you came without a Bible for any reason, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll drop a Bible off to you. We're also going to be in Galatians chapter 1 a little bit later on. So we are following the Apostle Paul on a journey through the seven seas of the devoted life. Let's just pray here at the beginning and then we'll get into it. Father, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for your word uh, and we thank you, Lord, for the truth. We thank you, Father, for your ways and for who you are and we commit this study to you, Lord, as we begin to search the word together. We pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we know that, uh, that this is the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. We know, Lord, that this is a, a well-marked yet very narrow path that we're on, and we just pray that you would help us tonight to see where we are in it and to have wisdom, Lord, in what you're doing for each of us individually in these days. So help us, Lord, we pray. Speak to us through the life of this man and through this eternal word. Anoint us by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are on a journey of exploration with the Apostle Paul. Uh, our desire is to explore the word and find God in his fullest. And so we are on this journey with Paul. It's his journey, which is our subject, but it's our journey, which is our object. We want to see ourselves through the lens of God's word. And every one of us that will live a devoted life to God will pass through the seven seas that uh, Paul did that we see within him. And so just as way of quick review, I will tell you what they are. Uh, The seven C's, that is the letter C. First of all, there is the C of context, and that is that we all have a backstory. There is something that leads up to our introduction to Jesus Christ. That is then followed by the second C, which is conversion. That moment where God reveals himself to us, where the seed that has been planted at some point germinates and springs to life, and we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus through the gospel, and we are saved, we're converted. Uh, And then then that quickly begins the third C, which is the C of cultivation, where God begins to form and nurture and shape his person, his work, his will, his plan uh, into us that we might know him. That then uh, becomes a calling. The fourth C is our calling, that thing that God has made us for, that he is leading us into. Um, And then that then is followed by the C of continuance. And that's the long haul part where the Bible talks about being faithful and steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord. That part where we plod through and we realize that this is a marathon and not a sprint and we're going the distance with God. And then that will one day come to the sixth seat, which is culmination, is that we will have a point where we will pass the baton. None of us will be in this world indefinitely. We'll uh, run our course, we will do our work, and then we will hand off what we have done to another generation. And then that is followed by the seventh and final C, which is our crown, that which uh, we receive eternally. And so as we follow Paul through his journey, we see ourselves and what God is doing in us. And so if you're just joining us tonight for the very first time, we have already explored the sea of context. We have seen Paul's history, his context, his past. We know that he was a Jewish leader, that he has recently kind of come of age. We learned in in our study last week that he was a young man at this point. And so we don't Um, We don't see him around during the time that Jesus was on earth and Jesus was crucified, but now very shortly thereafter, we see him rising to prominence. And so you kind of get an idea of his introduction into the system. We know that he was rising through the ranks of Judaism and that he was on the forefront of the Stop the Church movement. He uh, 
had a mission and a hatred for Jesus' followers, and he was uh, putting feet to his faith, so to speak, and he was persecuting and killing Christians. Um, But then we saw, after his context, we saw his conversion. We saw that last week where Paul, or Saul, he was at this time, had a personal encounter with Jesus. He, he met his person, he met his power, he heard his voice, he came face to face with his grace, and he was converted. He was supernaturally healed, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, he was baptized. And now, immediately after, tonight in our study, we enter the third C with Paul, and that is the C of cultivation. The seed has germinated, and now it must be cultivated. Now, when we talk about a seed in its literal sense, uh, the cultivation process is that of nurturing and fertilizing and watering and protecting that young plant until it's healthy, stable, and self-sufficient and able then to survive on its own and then bear fruit on its own. And so there's a cultivation process when it comes to just a seed. But when we talk about it in the context of being a Christian, of now cultivating uh, what God has birthed in us, it's the process of nurturing and rooting and feeding and developing and shaping and emptying and pruning and strengthening what God is doing in us, the work of his spirit in us, until a healthy, stable, fruitful, mature Christian develops. And so the Bible uses words for this process. You've probably heard the word sanctified before or sanctification. And that is kind of the process of God cultivating the work of Christ in our lives. He is working it out in us. You've heard uh, in the Bible the words being shaped. God like the potter who shapes the clay. And he's shaping us. It's a work of cultivating what he's sown into us. You've heard the word disciple or discipled or discipleship. And these are all the biblical terms for this process of being cultivated and nurtured and cared for and and, and deepened and matured. And so it's a process that anyone who comes to know Jesus is going to go through. And, And here's a spoiler alert, is that sometimes it's an unpleasant process. And sometimes it's even a little bit painful, but it is absolutely inescapable. Is that if you have been born of God and you know Jesus, God is going to work in your life. But ultimately, it's a good process. It's a necessary process. And if you make it through, you're going to say that it was worthwhile, that you're glad that God has done this work within you. And so our text tonight, as we look at the beginning of Paul's cultivation, is in Acts chapter 9, and we pick up right in verse 20, right after he is healed and he is baptized Uh, and, and strengthened. And it tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, it says that straightway or right away, immediately, it says he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. What a flip. What a transformation. He went from persecutor to preacher in a day. And it says, but all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem and came here for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews, which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very or truly Christ. And after that, many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their lying await was known by Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, so he leaves Damascus, which is in Syria, and he crosses into Israel and then down to the capital, Jerusalem, where the church began, It says that he assayed or attempted or endeavored to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus." 
And he was with them, that is, Paul was with the apostles and the disciples, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed or argued with the Grecians, that is the Grecian Jews, the Greek Jews, but they went about to slay him. So he's got a track record now. He, he is an equal opportunity offender. He will offend you if you're Syrian. He will offend you if you are Jewish. And he will bring you to the point where you want him dead. Which when the brethren knew, that is the Christians, his brothers and sisters, they brought him down to Caesarea, port city on the Mediterranean Sea, and then they sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost and were multiplied. So this early, early experience of Saul, the disciple, just immediately after coming to know Jesus Christ. What amazing days those are. I don't know if you remember what it was like for you. It tells us in verse 20, right at the beginning of the text, it says that straightway or right away, without wasting any time at all, it says that he began to preach Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. That right out of the gun, as soon as he could stand on his own two feet again, he began to proclaim the truth that had been revealed to him and he couldn't hold it in. And I remember what it was like in those early days for me. I remember what it was like to not know Christ. What it was like to lay my head on the pillow at night and wonder what truth was and where I came from and what I was on earth for and what would happen when I die. And I remember when Jesus encountered me and came into my life and he turned the lights on and he revealed truth and grace. And I remember the, the, the peace that came into my life in that moment when I met him. And I remember the calm and the effect that that calm had upon all of those thoughts and fears and anxieties and worries. And I remember the strength that resulted from just being undone from that burden that had been on me for so long. And I remember the excitement of the illumination of having the word come to life. And that that which had been foreign and, and alien to me as a child, learning scriptures and not making any sense at all. And then all of a sudden, almost supernaturally understanding them and seeing the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament and how Jesus fits into the whole picture and seeing light bounced off all the different parts of the word to reflect one God in his glory and to be able to see that so clearly. I remember the amazing power that that felt like in my life. I remember it. And I remember in those early days when I couldn't get enough of the word. When, when it was like the buttons on the radio were being beaten in because I was just searching for that station and it didn't matter what it was. It could have been, uh, you know, a, 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 an old school Methodist preacher or a Catholic bishop or some dry voice just reading a book from 500 years ago, something about God. But it was like I was a sponge and I was going to take it all in. I just couldn't get enough and I also couldn't hold it in. I remember sitting in church and I couldn't wait for the sermon to be over so that I could just explode to the person next to me. And I'm almost embarrassed now remembering some of those conversations in the early days because it was like I was just throwing up everything I had been learning. And, and I remember apologizing to all of these Christians and just saying, I know you've probably heard this 10,000 times, but this is brand new to me and I love it. And talking to everyone I could about the things that I was learning of God, and I just couldn't hold it in. And what I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that everyone couldn't see what I saw, and I couldn't believe that everyone else didn't want what I had. I didn't understand that I was trying to communicate a deeply spiritual experience with words when it's an inexpressible experience that's going on inside. And you just say, how can you not see this? How can you not understand this? How could you not know this? And I was confused that people would be so indifferent and so disinterested. And yet it was the same exact thing for Saul in the moment that he came out with that same experience. He began going into the synagogues and he thought he would find common ground because these Jews that he was talking to knew the scriptures the same way that he did. And when he would begin to explain to them that it was Jesus throughout the whole thing that makes it all make sense, that Jesus was the one who was slain 
In the Garden of Eden, when a lamb was slain and Adam was clothed with the skins, it was speaking of Jesus. That the whole thing speaks of Jesus. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. It's Jesus. That when Abraham offered up his only son, it was a picture of Jesus, the father offering up the son. When, when the, the, the lamb or the ram was in the, 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 the thicket with the crown of thorns, that it was Jesus. That when Moses was on the hill with the three men and Moses was the man in the middle with his arm raised, and there was, it was Jesus that caused the victory in the valley below. And, and how can you not see it? It's so clear to me. And yet they couldn't see it. They were completely blinded by it. But straightway, he went and he did it. He went from persecutor to preacher. He has vision, he has ability, he has energy, and he no doubt is carrying the assumption that the great contrast between what he was and what he came to do and what he now is and what he is actually doing is going to be enough to open their eyes and they're going to realize the truth and they're going to come to Jesus as well. Only one problem, it didn't work. Because he began to preach Christ to them, but they didn't want to receive what he had. And notice what it says in verse 21. It says that they heard him and they were amazed, but they were amazed for the wrong reason. They weren't amazed with what he was saying. They were amazed with the fact that he was saying it. They were amazed with what or who he was saying, not what he was saying. They said, is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem and came here for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests? See, they were amazed at the change in his behavior, but they weren't hearing the message that he came to preach. But notice in verse 22, it says that Saul increased the more in strength and he confounded the Jews which were at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ, or this is the one. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that they were impacted and they were moved by what they saw in him, but they were not impacted, nor were they moved by the message that he was com, com, uh, uh, bringing to them. He could confound them and he could prove his point, but notice he had no power to convert anyone that was speaking to him in that side. Now, one of the things that Paul did not realize at this early stage in his Christian life is something that he would write later on to the Corinthian church where he would say that it's when I am weak that I am what? Strong. And here he is very, very strong. He was strengthened when he rose off of his bed when uh, Ananias prayed for him. He is strengthened even the more so now. He's very strong in his persuasion tactics. He is very energized and he even has the fire of the Holy Spirit in him, but he does not have the nature, the essence or the aroma of Jesus in him yet. That's going to take some time. He had physical strength, he had mental strength, but he is not yet spiritually strong enough to bring conversion through his message, okay? Now, not only did it not work, not only did his message not land and people weren't saved, but ultimately he had to be airlifted out of Damascus because people were so agitated by the things that they were saying that they were just going to kill him. Now, I am certain that this was uh, extremely discouraging for this young Saul who thought that he would be so early and so amazingly influential and impactful in his ministry. But he learned three very important lessons in the early stages of this cultivation. He learned, first of all, okay, that he came out of a sewer. That's an important lesson that everyone has to learn in the early days of their, their walk with Jesus, is that what you came out of is a sewer. What did he come out of? He came out of the Jewish religion. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a leader in the prominence of a system that proclaimed to uh, be the representation of the true and the living God. And yet, what he's learning now is that as soon as he is not in allegiance with the people that he loved and labored alongside, they want him dead that their love for him was only as deep as his devotion to the cause to which they were also committed. But it was a very shallow depth of relationship. 
They once respected him, now they want to kill him. How many of you realized at the moment that you came to Jesus Christ that every one of your earthly relationships was about as deep as you could kind of just poke through with your finger? That as soon as you weren't walking in the same direction or according to the same standards as the people that you were best friends with or in love with in the world, that they turned their backs on you and now wanted nothing to do with you. The world has nothing but conditional love. And Saul had to learn that, and he did learn it early on. Okay, And part of coming to Christ is seeing clearly what you came out of. The second lesson that he learned from this very early experience is the law of the letdown. Did you guys catch that in verse 23? It says that he was let down the wall in a basket. (laughs) I I, I don't really mind personally when worship songs aren't theologically perfect. You know, most of them aren't. If you really wanted to be nitpicky, you could probably go through the lyrics of every single uh, contemporary worship song and you could find some theological problem with it. And that doesn't really bother me all that much because I understand, uh, you know, where there's artistry and different things and, and we have the anchor of the word and all that. But there's one song that we sing uh, in these days that it doesn't bother me to where I won't sing it, but I just hate the song. You know, what? It's, it's the one that's the king of my heart. Because there's this chorus in there where we all sing like rally cry. We, we sing, you're never going to let, never going to let me down. You guys know that one? You're never going to let, never going to let me. And I won't, I can't sing it because that's not true. Okay. That's just not true. God, I, newsflash, spoiler alert, he's going to let you down. Okay. Let me explain. I have somewhere in an invisible closet somewhere stacked from the floor to the ceiling a pile of refused and rejected scripts that I handed to God and said, God, I wrote an amazing plan for this day or for this month or this season or this segment of my life or your church, or this family, or these people that I'm going to counsel. God, I wrote an amazing script of how everything's going to work out here, Lord. And he just took the thing and he's like, no, not doing that. (laughs) What? Another refused script, Lord, another one? But, But Lord, this is so good. No, I submitted it, God rejected. Okay, now here's Saul's script for Damascus. You ready? He saved He comes into the city. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. His eyes are opened. He's equipped. He's chosen. He's anointed. He's enabled. He's positioned. The need matches his gifting. And he's thinking, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to go into the city. I'm going to preach. I'm going to drop knowledge bombs on these people, the likes of which they had no idea existed. I am going to blow their minds, showing them Jesus in the scriptures and proving that he is is the son of God. And then the fire of God is going to fall. And revival, Jerusalem is going to happen in Damascus. And cloven tongues of fire are going to fall down on all of their heads. And they're going to say, Paul is the greatest of the apostles. And and, and it's going to be amazing. And I can just imagine Paul as he's in that basket. And he's scratching his head and he's thumbing through his script. And he's going like, where did I miss a line? This is not how I pictured this whole thing going out. See, he thought it was going to go a certain way. But what he learned in the basket as he was being let down as he learned that, wow, no one cares what I have to say. No one heard anything I have to say. No one converted because of what I had to say. And now I'm being driven out of the city. I have 10 subscribers to my podcast that I thought would be viral by now. I have zero likes and my influence is way, 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 way down. One of the things that he did not know yet that he will learn as we all will is something that he would write later on again to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 is he would say that what we have, the value of what we have, the value of what we bring, he says, we have this treasure, Jesus, in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. See, there was a whole lot of Saul in the message that was being given. 
There was a whole lot of Saul in the script that he submitted to God about how things should go in Damascus. And for him, there was kind of an equal excellency. Well, yeah, God, it's the excellency of Jesus, but it's also the excellency of my presentation and my testimony and the power of what you've done in my life. And God said, no, it doesn't really work like that because you're not really as good as you think you are. I look at you and I see a jar of clay, very fragile, very brittle, very unreliable. But I see what I have as light and glory and power. And if you want to deliver the light and glory and power of me, I do that in weak and earthen vessels, not in strong, persuasive personalities. And so God said, I'm not going to bless that script because in the long term, I see what's actually going to come out of that. It's the law of the letdown. Listen, this is just a new version of an old story. And if you know the Old Testament, you understand. Remember Joseph? I got this coat, many colors. I got potential. My IQ is a little bit higher than my brother's. They're going to bow down to me. They're going to see how I'm going to rule over them. This is going to be great. God, I got this great script. I wear the coat. I bring the report. Jacob gives me the inheritance early. Next thing you know, there's a bloody coat and a bloody Joseph sitting in the bottom of a pit waiting to be sold as a slave into Egypt. It's a letdown. Again, not just Joseph, but Moses. I'm 40 years old. I don't look like these people in Egypt. Those are my people out there. God, you put me in here so that I could save them out there. And for such a time as this, you've raised me up to be the deliverer to bring your promise about to bring the people back into the land. And so Moses goes out with his chest puffed up and he slays an Egyptian, the hero of the people. And then he stands in front of two Jews arguing. He says, hey, why are you guys arguing with each other? You're brethren. And they look at him and they say, who do you think you are? Are you gonna kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Who made you a ruler over us? And next thing you know, Moses is being let down from Egypt and he's on his way to Arabia, to Midian, where he'll spend the next 40 years learning that the excellency of the power is not in him. David, Goliath is going to fall. I'm going to march back to Jerusalem with this 18 pound head, 25 miles. I'm going to march into the palace and Saul is going to say, this is what we've been waiting for. This young man. And there he is in the palace. God, this is great. I've got this role. I've got this position. I see what you're doing. You're so good. Lord, I love this script. And then he turns around and he sees this king and the spear flies and sticks in the wall right next to him. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, he's just thumbing through his script. He's like, that's not in here. That's supposed to be a crown, not a spear. God said, no, 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 no. See, the excellency, the power is not in you. It's in me, and you've got a lot to learn if you're rightly going to represent me. David was let down, and now we see it in Paul. And if you walk with God, you have seen it in you, and I have seen it in me, the law of the letdown. Another thing that that Saul learned in this early lesson as he's being let down the wall in a basket is he's learning the law that you can't lay an egg from an egg yolk. And I'm going to explain that one. Okay, uh, we raised chickens for a while. We gave up because we couldn't keep them alive because <laughs> weasels are smarter than humans when it comes to getting to chickens. But we raised them for a while and it was a lot of fun uh, when my oldest kids were young. And one time we had this great idea that we would mail order chickens because you can apparently for really cheap, you can get chickens delivered to you in the mail. And, and so uh, we, we did it and you know it's like 25 chickens and they're gonna send them in a box and they actually get mail. I'm like, this is gonna be very interesting. So we get a, a call from the post office at 7 a.m. on a particular morning and they, they just said, they're here. That's what they said. And so we go there and they were peeping up the place. We could hear them in their little box. You know, and they, and they were shipped and it took three days for them to ship. And I'm like, how in the world does this happen? And so I did a little research and what I found out is that uh, inside that yolk, inside the egg, when the chicken develops, is, is of course the embryo and everything that becomes a chicken. But what there also is, is this food source. And, and the last thing that this young little chick does before it hatches is that it absorbs all of the nutrients that are left over in the yolk. And that yolk, the food source in it, is enough to keep that little chick alive for three days. 
So it can live for three days without eating anything just based on the strength it received from the leftovers inside the egg, okay? That happens to a new Christian too, okay? You're born again, and there's this charge. There's this filling. There's this strength that comes from God. And you think that you're like super spiritual Superman. You know, like I could do anything for Jesus. I could do anything for Jesus. And you try and it doesn't work, okay? Because you can't reproduce a chick from the strength of the yolk, okay? You can't lay an egg from a yolk. That young chick has to grow up. It has to become mature. It has to develop the faculties and the nourishment and the ability to grow an egg inside of it and then lay it. And that has to happen to a disciple as well. There's a cultivation where Christ is formed in a life because you can't give away what you don't have. And so Paul has all this strength, but he has no power. He has ability, he has talent, he has calling even in anointing. What he doesn't have is the time of his calling. It hasn't come into fruition. It hasn't come into maturity yet, okay? Nevertheless, Saul's determined, and he's going to give it the old college try. And so in verse 26, it tells us again, it says that when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were afraid of him, and they believed not that he was a disciple. He said, all right, it didn't work in Syria, but it's got to work in Jerusalem. I mean, these are Christians. They're going to receive me. Uh, The problem that he ran into there is that even though he is forgiven for the sins that he committed, the crimes that he committed against the church, it takes some time for the past to become the past for other people. Okay, you moved on from that which you did before you knew Christ, but the people that you hurt haven't moved on yet. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You were forgiven, you're saved, you're changed, but when you go and you try to show that change to the people that you wounded prior to coming to Christ, they're like, I'm not so sure. I don't want to go through that again. You know, uh, let's see it played out for a little while. But thank God for Barnabas in verse 27. It says that Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and he declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and how he had spoken to him, the Lord spoke to to Saul, and how he, Saul, had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And they received him, and he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And so he spends this time for a little while, received of the church, learning Christianity by example from those that had gone before him, those that were more mature and that had a little bit of experience, okay? But then, verse 29, it says that he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's good, but he disputed against the Grecians. He argued with the Grecians and then they went about to slay him, okay? Now, when you look at Jesus, you take Jesus as our example, and, and you see the way that Jesus conducted himself and you look at his ministry. There's an amazing passage. It's in Matthew chapter 12 uh, and, and it begins in verse 15. It's going to go up uh, on the screen. Um, but it's right after Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. He did just did this amazing miracle uh, and, and he received a bit of criticism for it. The, the, the ruler of the synagogue, the Jews that were there were offended that Jesus would heal a man on the Sabbath day. And then Matthew kind of gives this, uh, this commentary. He says this, he says, but when Jesus knew it, that they wanted to kill him because he did this thing, it says he withdrew himself. He backed off. He retreated from there. And it says that great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And then he charged them that they should not make him known. And here's what it says then, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will show judgment to the Gentiles. That's speaking of the calling, the anointing, the ministry, the purpose of Jesus. His whole purpose is to proclaim and demonstrate the father. But yet it says this, verse 19, he shall not strive, that means fight, or cry, that means shout, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. Meaning that he's not going to be like this over the top, 
boisterous personality type that refuses to not be heard and is in your face about it. It, it, it describes him as a bruised reed. He will not break in a smoking flax. He will not quench. He's gentle till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. What's the point? Here's the point. Is that when you look at Jesus, Jesus wasn't one that was going to dispute and argue and try to persuade you of the truth. He was there. He would let it, be, let it out. He, he let what was in him come out. He healed the man with the withered hand. He would speak simply the truth that was there. But when people started to rise up, he withdrew. He said, I'm not going to get drawn into your argument and into your fight. He's like, I'm just going to let the truth speak for itself and stand for itself. That was Jesus' way. He was attractive, not aggressive. When you read Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit first poured out and 3,000 people did get saved... Okay, you see that this progression take place. The, the spirit came upon the apostles that had been with Jesus for three years and there was an attraction. The people that witnessed it, they came along and they said, what is this? This is amazing. Something powerful is going on. That got their attention. Then there was an interaction. They asked and they said, what does this mean? And then Peter just explained it. He said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then he explained that, that just like David prophesied, God raised up his son, Jesus, who died for sins. And now he's poured out the Holy Spirit. He gives an explanation and then he gives an invitation. He just simply says that this promise is for you and your children and as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. And it says that that day, 3,000 people made a decision themselves to give their lives over to Jesus Christ. There, there was this beautiful exchange. There wasn't an argument and a fight and a debate and anger and bitterness and all this kind of thing. It was just this beautiful presentation that started with an, uh, an attraction, it ended with an invitation, and it resulted in salvation. What's the point? The point is this, is that there's no need to dispute truth, okay? Truth stands by itself. Spurgeon, the great preacher, was once asked, how do you defend the truth? And he laughed. He said, defend the truth? He goes, how do you defend a lion? He goes, you just open the cage and let it out. It defends itself, and that's what truth does. Truth stands by itself. It doesn't need me to prop it up. And what I've observed in myself, and I've seen it in others as well, is that when you feel the need to argue someone into believing or standing on your side, it's probably because there's a little bit of doubt in you as to what you're proclaiming and saying. Okay? You don't need to argue. Don't argue Jesus. When it gets to that point, do what Jesus did. He withdrew. Okay? He said, no, nah, this isn't the time. The heart isn't right. The heart's not ready. Now listen, if you're a lawyer, please argue. If you are fighting the cause of social justice, please fight. Please argue. We need that. But if you are sharing the gospel, if you are seeking to hold Jesus up, don't argue. Okay? Pull back. Present truth and then let God do his work. <laughs> All right? Now, in this case, with Paul here in Jerusalem, he begins arguing with the Grecians and it escalates to the point where they want him dead. Now, that, that argument, go, that goes pretty far, right? I mean, we've all been in arguments with people, right? We've all been angry with people. Have you ever been so angry with someone that you actually want them dead and you're going to follow through on it? It takes a little bit of escalation, which means that this was getting intense between Saul and these Grecian Jews, all right? And because of that, that whole dynamic of Saul in Jerusalem at this time, his presence in Jerusalem became a detriment to the well-being of the church. Saul in Jerusalem was a detriment to the church. It was also a detriment to the witness that God wanted the church in Jerusalem to be to the people that were around him. And listen to this, it was also a detriment to the well-being of Saul in his future and his calling. It didn't fit. Saul did not fit 
in the church in Jerusalem, and there was someone who had the wisdom to see it. So in verse 30, it says, when the brethren knew it, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him to Tarsus. Does anybody know what Tarsus represents for Saul? It's home. You ever heard the name Saul of Tarsus? That's Saul. This is that Saul. Do you know what they said to him? They said, come here, Saul. We're going to talk to you for a minute. Come here. Go home. Please go home. Go. This isn't working. You need to get out. They kicked him out of the church. Saul got kicked out of the Jerusalem church. Early. That was on his resume. Yeah, I got kicked out of a church. <laughs> it's the one in Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, he got sent home. And then, notice the result, verse 31. Then, this is cause and effect. Then, had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost and were multiplied. In other words, once Saul was gone, everyone in the church just went, that was hard. (laughs) You know, that was just a very intense season and we're really glad that he's gone. You know, it's true what they say is that some people are a blessing wherever they go. And some people are a blessing whenever they go. And Saul was both at different times in his life. But in this instance, he was a blessing when he left. Okay, listen, this is important to understand. Because you say, what's going on in all of this? Here's what's going on. Because we're going to look at this big picture from God's perspective and from the, 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 the big timeline, the big picture story. Here it is. Is that Saul's calling and what God was doing in him and preparing him for did not blend with the ministry of the church in Jerusalem, okay? Not all churches are the same, and they're not all supposed to be. And it's important for us to understand that, all right? When you're talking about a church, like this church or any church, it it involves a lot of things. It involves culture. We have a culture in the USA, in New York, and in Dutchess County. It's very unique, and it's unique to other areas, but it's an ingredient in who we are as a church. A church also involves location. It involves individuals, and individuals have personalities. All of these things are the makeup of what makes a church, okay? You also have the church's calling by God, not All churches exist for the same reason in the mind and in the architecture of God's plan. Churches serve different functions, okay? I've been here for 12 years, and I've seen this happen, not just in this church, but in other churches, is that someone will leave a church for a particular reason, and they'll maybe come here. And they come to this church, and they, they, they spend like a couple of weeks looking at it, And they begin to say, well, I know what's missing here. I know what's wrong with this church. And now I know why God is sending me here so that I can fix it. You know, and so they'll they'll begin to like say some things. They'll begin to suggest some things. Then they'll begin to like criticize some things. And and what what you start to realize is that this person that just left a church came here and now they want to make this church a clone of the church they just left. And the whole thing is kind of wonky. It doesn't really work, okay? Listen, Calvary Chapel, the Hudson Valley, and this is purely my observation of of being here for, for, I think, about 12 years now. And and you'll concur with with this as soon as I say it, is that Calvary Chapel, Hudson Valley, is a Bible church, all right? We teach the Bible. We stand on the Bible. We we give the Bible. That's what we do. We are also a fellowship church. The fellowship in this church is like none other that I've ever been a part of or even heard of. The way you guys love each other and the way people feel when they come in as visitors and the way they're embraced and the way you guys interact when we meet in in the, the solid ground after service or in the special events and the relationships and the bonds, it's sincere and it's genuine. We're a fellowship church. It's also an evangelism church. The gospel is preached and Pastor Bobby has a gift of evangelism and making Jesus attractive to people. And people give their lives to Christ because of the gospel that's presented in this place. Not just on Sundays and other parts of the week, but even in you guys bringing people in. There's evangelism. It's an evangelism church. Calvary Hudson Valley is also an oasis in Dutchess County. 
It is just this stable, refreshing place. And, and if you come, you know what I'm talking about. You understand that there's just something that's refreshing consistently about what we are as a church. And we serve the purpose of being an anchor in Dutchess County. I have seen that from every angle. That's uh, uh, in a nutshell, part of what we are as a church. There are other things that we are not, Calvary Hudson Valley. We are not a missions church, okay? We're not against missions. We love the spread of the gospel. We agree with it, but it's not the culture, the DNA, the calling of Calvary Hudson Valley to be sending out missionaries. That's just not something that we are, okay? We are also not a cause church. This isn't the church where you're going to come and every Sunday you're going to hear someone standing up for another cause. We're not against causes. We're for every single cause, but it's not who we are as a church, okay? We are also not a school of ministry, This probably isn't going to be the church that 50 other churches start from and spring out from. Now, it could happen, and it does happen, and it has happened, but it's not really intentional. It's more effectual. It happens, all right, because it's just not who we are as a church, okay? Now, what does that mean, all right? It's okay for a church to be what it is. That's designed by God, all right? Don't try to change it. Go with it. How do you like it when your spouse tries to change you? Right? Well, God doesn't like it when you try to change what he's doing in a church. (laughs) Just go with it. All right? Not everyone is everything and not every church is everything. What's the point? Here it is. Paul's presence in Jerusalem wasn't good for the church and it wasn't good for Paul. But here's what's going on underneath all of that. Is that at this point... Paul, Saul, is unqualified for ministry. He's not ready yet. He had salvation. He had knowledge. He had gifts. He had ability. He had talent. He had boldness. He had courage. And from a human standpoint, he was more qualified than most people, probably than the rest of the people that were there in Jerusalem at that time. But he lacked one thing. At this moment, it was timing. It was what God's timing was for him. And here's what you got to understand is that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. There was too much Saul in Saul and not enough Jesus yet in him at this point. And so God qualifies the call. And because of that, God is going to do a new thing with Paul and he needed to be shaped in a different way. And listen, not molded after the Jerusalem model. That wasn't going to work for what God was going to do with Saul of Tarsus. Okay, so here's what God did. God, at this point, verse 30, 31, where he is kicked out of the church and told to go to Tarsus, God enrolls Saul in a BSD, a program. It's called the backside of the desert, and he's going to get a degree in it, whether he likes it or not. All right, it is the perfect will of God for Saul at this point to be sent to a place where he is in complete spiritual isolation. He is going to go to Tarsus where there is no church, no pastors, no Christian radio, no Christian books. All he would have is the Old Testament and Jesus. That's all he's going to have. And he talks about it in Galatians chapter one. Let me read it to you. He says this, He says, but I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me was not after man, for I neither received it from man, neither was I taught it except by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, listen, I was not mentored. I was not trained up in any any particular church or, or organization or ministry. He says, I was taught by Jesus. He says in verse 15, He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, different ministry, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and was with him for 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none except for James, the Lord's brother. 
And the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. And then afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And so essentially what Paul is saying there, he's saying, listen, God did not allow me to be anchored in a place where I was mentored by any other ministry, but he put me in a place where I would need to learn to hear his voice and discern his will and come into an understanding of who he is and be shaped and cultivated for the ministry that he planned for me. And he did that for me in a place of complete and total isolation, apart from what was going on in the church or the churches that had been there before me, okay? And that's what he was. He was taught, he was shaped, he was formed, he was cultivated by God. And this is not common just to Paul. This is what God has done continually throughout the ages. He did it with Abraham. Abraham, go to Canaan. There's nothing in Canaan. God said, I'm in Canaan, and I'm going to teach you there. I'm going to lead you there. Jacob was sent away, even from his family, and up into Haran, and, and he would say, God, but there's nothing there. There's no churches there. There's no, I don't even have a place but a rock. And Jesus opened the heavens, and he said, no, you have me, and I'm going to show you who I am out here in the desert. You're going to learn me. Joseph was sent to Egypt. He didn't even know the language much less have access to things that would feed his spirit and his soul. And God said, no, you don't need that because you're going to have me in that place and I'm going to develop you and teach you. Moses would say, God, what's in Midian? There's a couple of sheep eating rocks. How am I going to grow in Midian? God says, I'm going to be with you in Midian. And when I'm done with you there, you're going to be equipped and ready. You're going to be able to bring me back to the people I'm sending you to. David would say, God, what are you going to do with me in a cave How am I going to grow? How am I going to be fed? How am I going to be encouraged? God said, I'm going to be with you in the cave and you're going to learn of me there. All of them had their BSD, the backside of the desert degree. Do you understand that to be mentored by a man or a woman in the Christian faith, it is a privilege, but it can also be a problem. Did you know that? It's a privilege, but it can also be a problem. Here's one of them. One of them is because we're called to follow the master and not the pastor. And sometimes too much human influence and not enough of the divine can get us off course and can slow the process of what God is wanting to do in our life. Remember Samuel? Samuel was in the temple. He was there with Eli. And and he had to learn how to discern between Eli's voice and God's voice and the two were mixed up. There was too much of a blending but he had to learn how to hear God's voice. And every one of us has to learn how to walk with God, not through the mediator of those that mentor us. And so sometimes that can get in the way. It blurs the kingdom model. You follow a man for too long and all of a sudden you can see a spiritual hierarchy form. Okay, there's the prophet or the apostle and then there's the pastor and then there's elders and then there's just common Christians. And as I get closer to God, you know, I'll become these things and and there's all these things between me and God. That's not the kingdom model. The kingdom model is not a pyramid. It's a manger. You know what a manger is? It's a bunch of animals on the ground and a big star and that's it. Well, I mean, in Jesus, obviously, I'm, I'm leaving him out of this manger. <laughs> you know? but, but the star is God. He's there. And the rest of us, we are sheep. And all of us, there's one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And sometimes too much influence from people can cloud us from knowing God in the way that he wants us to know him. Another problem with, with uh, you know, being overly influenced by, by humans is that it is impossible, almost, I'll say almost impossible, It is almost impossible to both honor your tradition and be led of the Spirit. Because you guys know that us humans, we're into tradition, right? And what happens in churches is that churches become traditional. God moves in a certain way. He develops a specific form that he uses for a period of time. But the Spirit continues to move and lead and the form changes even though the Spirit doesn't. And sometimes that form can become dead And the spirit has moved on and it can die, okay? The spirit keeps, but cultures change and die. You you know why milk goes bad? Because of the cultures, the thing, the enzymes, the living things that are in it, all right? And and so you have a church, you have a move of God, a, a tradition you could call it, and God the Holy Spirit is the same, but the culture goes bad. 
And over time, God does a new thing. He changes the way he's doing things. That's what he's doing with Paul. He's going to move in a different way, all right? You can't pass on the culture. It goes rancid and it corrupts the Spirit's influence. The third reason is because God knows only what he's cultivating in an individual and why man doesn't know. And so when you're looking to man to be your mentor, man doesn't know what God is doing in your life. And truthfully, man doesn't really care. God cares. He knows and he cares what he's doing in your life. The point is this. Is you wonder sometimes why you feel like you don't fit. Why don't I fit in a church or in this church or in this study group or amongst these Christians or in this workplace or Bible study? Why, God, did you put me in a job where there's no other Christians? God, why is it that you have allowed there to be a policy put in place on my job that restricts me from listening to messages while I work? Why is it, God, that I'm feeling more and more isolated? And the answer might be that God has enrolled you in a BSD, is that he wants to bring you to the place where you know him and him alone. And everyone needs a BSD. Because what you learn on the backside of the desert is essential to your longevity in this life. And here's what you learn. You learn that you're not that great. You learn that you're not needed, that you're not impressive, that you're not better, that you're not special, but that you are loved, you are forgiven, you are chosen, you're kept, preserved by God, you're valued by him in a way that you'll never understand, and that you're called by him and you're entrusted by him to carry the excellency of the knowledge of his son in a jar of clay in an earthen vessel. If God had blessed Saul in the early days, and the musicians can come, we're we're finished. If God had blessed Saul in the early days, he would have thought way too highly of himself and he would have become an arrogant, narcissistic leader. He would have made people followers of him rather than followers of Jesus. He would have become self-reliant, drawing from his own well. He would have become tripped up by the sins of his youth, which for him were arrogance and pride and self-glory. For others, it's other things. He would have worked for God, but he would not have known God. And unfortunately, that happens all too often. And so God had to let him fail. And his first two endeavors failed. And the reason was because God was preparing him for success. You know what's amazing about Saul? Do you know what Saul means? It means desired And that's kind of what he thought he was early on. It's like, the church needs me. God needs me. That's why he saved me. That's why he did this. Wow. But he's going to change his name. His name's going to become Paul. You know what Paul means? Small. It's going to work. And God's going to do infinitely more through his life than he ever could have asked, thought, or imagined. But God had to complete the work of forming Christ in him. And bringing him down. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. There's a secret, okay? Here's the secret. Here's what it is. You guys like secrets, right? The secret is this. Is that God in the highest dwells in the lowly place. Watch what Isaiah says. He says, for thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. So he's high. Where does he dwell? With him that is of contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's lowliness. Do you get it? It's a paradox. God says, I am God in the highest and I am calling you to be with me. But the way up is to go down. Go down to the top. That's where I am. And the more we realize that we are not complimented when we are called, but we're a byproduct of his mercy and of his grace and we're recipients of his spirit and the excellency of the treasure that's in us is of him and not of us. And the faster that we learn that on the inside, the faster we are usable by God and he begins then to exalt us in the lowly place. The way up is down. And the secret of cultivation is you go down to the top. Amen? Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Lord, we want to walk with you. And we want to know this devoted life. So we pray tonight, Lord, that you would help us, that you would give us wisdom, that you'd give us insight. 
that you'd give us understanding. Lord, that you'd show us our place in you, in your body, in this church, in the greater spectrum of your kingdom. I pray for those that are here tonight, Lord, that are going through a season where they're being deepened or let down or taught or in some way humbled in a good way, but it hurts. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open eyes and understandings and that the truth of these things would resonate and that through the pain of the situation, your goodness would overwhelm them and that, Lord, ultimately you would win, that the pruning, the shaping, sometimes even the beating, that it would produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness and that we would be made into the image of your son. And as Gideon, Lord, who put a little light in a little clay jar and a small thing became victorious over a big thing, I pray, Lord, that you would do that in each of our lives in ways that we could never understand or imagine. And through it all, that we would come to really know you, the one true God, that we'd be confident in you, that we'd be listening to you. You said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And that we would be so sensitive and responsive to your spirit's promptings and words, that we'd be so in love with your truth and so ready, Lord, to spread what you've placed inside of us. So help us, Father. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, for what you do and for the insight you give us in these things. Be with your church in these days and for your cause. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.